commissioned by Sullis Nua in Washington, D.C. Welcome to episode two of We Are The Makers. My name is Donald Deneen, and three months later, I still hate saying my name. A name I'm very happy to say, however, is that of our guest artist on this second instalment in our series, because that is the one and only dancer and choreographer in both cases make that extraordinaire, Liz Roach. Having spent our first instalment applying a whole load of words to pictures with photographer Eamon Doyle, today we are going to be dispensing thousands more in celebration of another mute but very different art form. I'm going to endeavour to explain throughout the programme where my own fascination with dance stems from, but suffice to say, in my inexpert opinion, Dance appears like a hidden language of the soul of the body, and it has always appeared thus to my eyes. Now, it being presented by me, this is a podcast series occasionally prone to exaggeration, but that isn't one, honestly. To all intents and purposes, the act of dancing is one of the surest and most enjoyable ways of knowing, actually knowing, that we got soul. The art of dancing feels like a way of corralling that soulfulness into meaning. This is how it feels to me anyway, and feeling is believing. Yet dance is more than that, much more even. As the purest expression of the miracle of how our bodies work, the simple act of dancing is its own reward. Dancing is an affirmation of life and a confirmation of its existence. It's every bit as meaningful and as brilliant as that here on ground level. Then there's a whole different level where artists like Liz Roach reside and ply their trade. So it's the making of dances we are concentrating on today, for all kinds of artistic dreams are dreamt with just the movement of head, hands and feet. Meaning is generated differently in that world, and I want to know more. Having the wherewithal to mould these shapes we are capable of throwing into art is a mysterious kind of divine intervention that has always fascinated me. Maybe it's the same for you, and if not, then perhaps it could be. I'd recommend it. Our guest today is someone who crafts these simple modes of expression into shapes and patterns in order to evoke meaning and truth on a higher level. There's something mysterious about how it all works that I want to unpick today. The urge to move is innate, but the skill and craft it takes to turn those internal rhythms and that external movement into dance is the magic in the making that we want to shine a light on in this episode. As a recovering DJ myself, I've spent a lot of time trying to make people dance which doesn't exactly qualify me for this honour of spending time with someone who has dedicated their life to making stunning dances, but it's in the same ballpark, albeit a whole different game. 
Now, just in case I get mistaken for an expert, my own appreciation for the form exists within very narrow terms of reference, but my love for it is strong and still deepening almost three decades in. Here's a brief resume of that love story. The spark was lit as far back as 1994, when Dublin Theatre Festival brought a seminal show called The Street of Crocodiles to the Olympia Theatre. Up until the 8th of October 1994, I had no idea what dance meant. But from that date onwards, the search for that same sense of revelation which blew me away that night is what keeps me coming back time and again and essentially what brings me here today. The force with which I was blown away was strong enough to bring me back around the following night and on every subsequent night till the run ended. As I remember it, it wasn't just what happened inside while the show was on that made the difference. What I felt upon leaving was something entirely unexpected and revelatory. The scene that played out on Dame Street post-show had been rearranged in the wake of the illumination which had just happened inside. The afterglow from those indoor fireworks lit up my way home and revealed yet another new shining path to the waterfall. The power of what I had seen on stage blew the windows and doors off to reveal patterns in everyday life that had hitherto been hidden. That was the revelation of seeing dance presented in such a way. It was meaningful in ways I could suddenly feel without being able to explain it in words. The beautiful thing is that you don't need to, right up until you start a podcast series a quarter of a century later. Thanks to the emergence of the Dublin Dance Festival in 2002, I was able to indulge my search for that same truth time and again without having to leave home. Among the voices that have spoken loudest and most directly throughout that time, that of Liz Roach resonates sharply and loudly across both decades. Her work has been impactful in the same way that Simon McBurney's Street of Crocodiles show was 25 years earlier. The same lingering after-effect tends to follow on from bearing witness to her beautifully wrought and finely crafted choreographic work. Whatever way the magic works, it refreshes the senses in such a fashion that crossing the threshold back out into the real world is taken with a lighter step. The world simply looks and works differently when your head's been turned by the dance. Since forming her company, originally called Rex Levitates, with her sister Jenny in 1999, her stellar output of almost 30 shows has seen her work performed to critical acclaim across the world. Their artistically ambitious, multidisciplinary productions have crossed boundaries and broken down generic barriers consistently at home and on their travels. For the sake of the show, we are going to be concentrating principally on two of the most impactful of the company's productions. 
In 2015, she forged new ground for contemporary dance in Ireland with the staging of Bastard Amber on the Abbey stage, which was a stunning collage of sublime design, live sound and choreography inspired by two giants of Irish art in the modern age, W.B. Yeats and Patrick Scott. Her most recent production, Deimos, on the topical theme of separation and togetherness, is showing as part of Dublin Dance Festival 2021 online. And we're going to be taking a deep dive into the making of both these groundbreaking productions. The arc of her journey from ballet school beginnings in 1980s Dublin to Ace Donna membership in 2020 is an expanse threaded through with creative highs and artistic achievement on repeat. Before we get into a discussion about the two most recent of those achievements, we're going to talk about Liz's journey to get to the point of making these dance works on this scale and to such an aesthetic level. Our meetings took place on a couple of beautifully lit May mornings in the library of Dance House on Foley Street. The doors to the studio had just reopened and audible signs of life were returning to the springboards, ballet bars and mirrored walls therein. We began at the very beginning, which for Liz was with ballet. Like, I think there was a lot of classical music and a lot of ballet music mm-hmm. in the house. My parents were always listening to classical music um, and always very affected by it and very affected by opera and, and all of that. So, yeah, there was that in the house all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister and myself went to ballet classes when we were little and we just got completely hooked. Yeah. <laughs> and she's a couple of years older than me. So um, we were always dancing around the house and putting on shows and all of that kind of business. We had quite a free, like it's myself and my sister and my brother, we we had quite a sort of a free upbringing and ballet was really structured and disciplined and my sister really took to that. She Mm. really loved that. And I really loved that, just that kind of sense of order Mm -hmm. and um, repetition Mm -hmm. was sort of amazing Um, because life was very busy, you know, and kind of chaotic. So, yeah, we were we were just really focused on that. Mm. And and when you say about the order and stuff like that, does that extend to, you know, the formal nature of, again, it's a world I don't know, but it seems like, you know, what you wear and the way you move and everything that it's kind of mapped out and and so on. So so that was appealing initially. Yeah, no, it's amazing because it's like all of the movements, like when you first start, you learn little by little, you learn all the movements at the bar and then that builds you towards all the movements in the centre until eventually at the end in the Grand Allegro when you're really jumping around the room and moving around the room. But that's all built up from those early exercises at Mm -hmm. the bar. Yeah, and we also... Like we went to this uh, ballet school at the Irish National College of Dance, which was connected to... Dublin City Ballet. Yeah. And so from a really early age, we were kind of kids in the performances of the company. And, but it was really full on. Like we. Where would those shows have been? Um, in the Olympia and in the pavilion, the old pavilion okay. in Dunleary. But they would have been a month of shows. So yeah. 
like I remember having to take a month off school in fourth class because I was performing like in the daytime shows of wow. it. And, and like, it was great. We were allowed to do those things, but yeah. it was also quite serious because, you know, of course it was a ballet company and they were serious and we were kids in the production. And so, um, it was mad, but it was also, um, just really, well, how can I say it? Like just a really clear introduction and kind of training and how to be on stage. Yeah. And and how young are you when you're that little kid within the, in the production? I, was, I think I was seven. Okay, right. Seven and eight. And then like as my sister, like they did, we did, we did Nutcracker and then we did Coppelia and like it was the same. For me, it was just skipping around in another costume and, you yeah. know, loving every minute of doing, getting my makeup done and all of that. Yeah. But living your best life. Totally, totally. <laughs> it was amazing. And it was so gossipy, even at seven, you know. So. The immersion into the world of dance and the skipping around in costumes and the living of her best life that went with it was a ritual initiation that lots of kids go through the world over. But even at that early stage, Liz's talent set her apart and the seeds for future artistic and choreographic dreams were seemingly sown from the start. I think my interest really with, like I always organised people, I always made dances. I don't know when that started, I would, but it was always from music. I would hear music and then I'd have a dance in my head and mm-hmm. then it was just who I could nab to to do the dance that was in my head. And, and, and this is from as far back as you can kind of remember reacting to, to music is so. that you wanted to to make something up to it. I think so. I yeah. think so, yeah. It was always there. And um, probably when I was about 12 or 13, I started to, I, that's the first point that I sort of remember having a plan to make a dance and like, yeah, it not being so much in the moment, but like having a plan and the idea was there and I, it was enough that I could write it down and okay. save it for later. Okay, you know, that well, kind of okay, way. okay. Yeah. So put it on the shelf. Yeah, yeah, I know. I must have had a plan. <laughs> can, can you think, or can you, can you tell me more about sort of what that was and at that time or, or was, is it, is it lost in memory? What, what, what you were going to do for this dance or was, what was the music or what was the... Yeah, I think the, I can't, I'm not sure I can remember the music. I have two memories there was this really strong beat somewhere in it. And then there was this kind of uh, melody over the top. And I sort of, my brain split and I was kind of choreographing in my head to both of those lines in the music. Yeah. And then I was working out how that would, how many people that would take and what it would look like. And if there would be, you know, when they would cross different parts of the stage, would they pick up different parts of the music? And like, it it was never a narrative. Mm -hmm. Like I never thought of a story. Mm -hmm. I still don't ever think of a story, but I just was completely like, if they just do this movement to the music, it'll be a story eventually. And what a story it eventually turned out to be. That self-assured touch in turning movement into dances was in place from the beginning. The light bulb moments go back a long way here. Actually, there are a lot of illuminative metaphors applicable to this story. Even that initial spark burnt brightly in Liz's case. By aged 15, she found herself frustrated with school and carrying a yearning for new horizons born of her ever-burgeoning love affair with dancing and the dance. 
I just, no, I'm just not even here. And I just have to go somewhere where I'm actually awake somehow. I didn't even think that, but you know, just looking back on it. Yeah, so I found out about this course and I was super focused and I went and I auditioned for the course and I got into the course. And then I kind of went back to my parents and I was like, look, it's not a big deal. I can just go and do this instead of school. And um, it's, it's like a foundation course and I can do that and then I can get myself organized and I can go to London then eventually when the time is right or that so that was my plan and they were like oh, that sounds like a good plan so like there was more to it than that mm. but but yeah and I remember on the first day of the course waiting outside to you know like you know if class started at 10 o'clock you know I was there at quarter past nine and and I just had this feeling of like yeah I'm in town I'm early, I want to be here, this is going to be okay. Like, of course, it was tough, but like, mm. yeah, just instead of dragging your way to school and dragging your way through life or something, mm. that's what it had felt like before. In actual fact, from that point forward, there was to be very little dragging done at all. Instead, the commitment with which she took her first steps established a rhythm and momentum that has continued unbroken to this day. Her introduction to modern dance also took place during this initial stretch of training. When you do all your ballet exams, you also do your modern exams. Okay. Uh, ISTD modern. So I'd had some introduction to kind of modern dance, but of course it's quite conservative. It's, you know... Um, so is it modern dance sort of branching out from ballet or, or how, how is that, or, or is it just... Within your ballet training, you would be given some modern dance training too. Is that how it yeah, works? Kind of, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, like you, you would go and do modern dance technique classes. So you would go and do uh, Graham classes or Cunningham classes. Mm-hmm. And this would be based on Morris Cunningham's technique or Martha yeah. Graham's technique. And we would, you know, so it, it eventually, you know, it was as codified as ballet was. Right. At that point, once okay. you learned it. Yeah. So you would, yeah, you just learned again, like a series of exercises and movements and you just kept working at them. So it was the same. You applied the same rule as ballet, but of course you had this, you know, this other vocabulary of movement to Mm -hmm. work with. Okay, gotcha. The next logical step to take in order to expand that vocabulary of movement was to further her training. 16-year-old Liz was granted the Arts Council bursary upon her first audition and it was Destination UK and the London Contemporary Dance School. Inevitably, there was a period of adjustment there while the differing abilities and levels of incoming students were aligned and calibrated. It was just big and I was in classes with with people that, you know, maybe hadn't been on stage really before. They'd done loads of training. They were talented dancers, but I just felt really show busy in comparison to them or as if I'd lived millions. I, 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 just, I just felt kind of, yeah, I don't know, like kind of, you know, cigarette smoking kind of, okay. you know, that sort of way. Yeah, and yeah. they just seemed really, not, not all of them, but... There was just that sense of having come from so much kind of 
stage experience and in the business and around things and all that excitement here. Yeah. All of a sudden you were you sort of in school with people that like had just done classes and now they were coming to their training and the school wasn't really talking about performance. They were okay. just talking about training. And I was like, I'm already in performance land. Yeah. You know, so it felt like a kind of a step back in some ways, or, yeah. or at least you're a little bit behind where you were. Well, that's and see, I realized that it sort of felt like that at the beginning. But in a way, what they were doing, what all those schools do really, is that they just they take you in and then they just strip everything back and then they start again. Yeah, right. And it takes a while to realize that. But it took me that it took me that time to realize it. It was only when I was finished there that I that I sort of felt that I was starting to settle in. There. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Onto that blank canvas, a vibrant new world of information and experience was projected. And on this brave new frontier, where different worlds were colliding, inspiration was everywhere. The net effect of that repeat stimulation was that new ideas about what dance could be were already starting to emerge. I, I suppose the only way I can think about it is that, like, Ireland, it felt in Dublin like dance was still proving itself as a thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the thing that you measured everything against was how talented somebody was, how thin they were, how how good they looked, how high their legs, like this all showed their technical ability. And this was all validation to prove that they were a really good dancer. So we were all working towards that. Whereas then when I went to see work in London, which would have been like 1991 or something, but people weren't as concerned with those things. They were concerned with the work that they were making. They didn't care really what you looked like mm-hmm. or they didn't care if you thought they were a good dancer or not. Mm-hmm. Whereas everything here was, you know, oh, like I have to, like first and foremost, I have to be a good dancer. Yeah. And there's a target to be reached at all yeah. times. Yeah. And as if, you know, audiences, that always had to be proved to audiences here first mm-hmm. that, you know, this was valid and this was real and now you can enjoy the show. Yeah, so in London, it was like this whole other level of inquiry and this whole, like a maturity, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That whole other level of inquiry was partially facilitated by London's strategic position at the epicentre of the art world and, in no small part, by some helpful signposting from one instructor in particular. Like I had this choreography teacher called Jane Dudley, who was an ex-Martha Graham dancer. So she was quite an old woman at that point, American and really tough. (laughs) So she kind of stripped me back completely, like anything that I thought that I might have had in terms of choreography. She was like, well, you don't. (laughs) So that was that. (laughs) Here's the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... But, 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 but somebody who's like on the right side of, of doing it for a good reason, right, to, to, would you say, or or you haven't got the conclusion? No, 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 but she, she just thought that, you know, she would say to us, you know, that you guys don't have any taste, you've nothing developed, you've no point of view, you've no opinion, Mm. artistically or creatively, which is fair enough. So she would send us off to galleries to look at William Blake 
and look okay. at the bodies in Blake and the musculature and all of that. And like all of that still is completely present in my making. And so the, interesting. That, yeah. yeah. So it was like she was kind of talking about like a completely other level, you know, telling us to go off and, and you know, yeah, like tell, we go off to galleries. Yeah, just to form an opinion in life. And that's what you would make work about. Yeah. And I suppose this previous idea of, oh, I love that piece of music. I, I just want to make dances to it. Yeah. I think she was probably trying to move that on a bit in everybody. That the forming of an opinion was conducted surrounded by the best galleries and the greatest artworks comes as no surprise considering the strength of the visual art thread that runs through all of Liz's work. I'm jumping forward here, but I was lucky enough to see a show of hers called Totems in the National Gallery, which directly referenced the paintings on the surrounding walls in meaningful and visceral ways. Then there was her piece Pilgrimage and I Thou, commissioned by the Sirius Art Centre in Cove and Cork Opera House, as a response to a Brian O'Doherty artwork called One Here Now. Those initial London eye-openings were instructive at the time and have continued to be so in many ways. It helped me notice how people are and what to capture, you know. So what the artist would capture then would make me, like if I saw somebody on the street, say if I saw an interaction between two people on the street that I would might inspire something choreographically for me to look at. Yeah. Well, looking at all the artwork really helped in terms of what to keep and what was important and what might be, you know, what might be the most poignant moment of a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, to think about how that, why does that stance of the body affect me more than another or, or all of that. Yeah. And the thing is, I, I just, I didn't know anything about it. So my reaction was quite upfront and straightforward. Like I, it was only later in life where I read books about these things and yeah. uh, ways of seeing things and conditioning on how we see things. And But I didn't have any of that in my head when mm-hmm. I was younger. I just felt a connection to things or I didn't. Yeah. So that was... I love this idea of identifying the most poignant moment of a moment and letting that be the starting point for making a dance. In tandem with the explosions that were going off in reaction to all the art being consumed, the expansion of the vocabulary of movement was continuing a pace between the walls of the dance school studio. The thing that was great about London Contemporary is that they would teach you the basic Graham Cunningham work, but you also had like really amazing practitioners uh, teaching you and they you know, and also they had ways of moving that were developed from those techniques into something else and were really, really sophisticated movers. Mm-hmm. And also because of, because of London Contemporary having a dance company, you would have a certain amount of the actual company mm-hmm. moving in and out of classes and teaching. And, and they were pretty exceptional dancers and in terms of what they had developed and very different ways of moving so, so like a lot of the time in those classes was like a complete de-skilling. You were just like, what are they doing? I can't even follow in their body where it's going or how to connect. And, but that was great because it sort of set you up for how complicated 
it is and how complicated it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, dancers that would talk about the experience like it was only after school, but like dancers like Jill Clark, for example, who would just talk her whole way through the experience of everything that was going on in her body as she was moving and, you know, blow like second by second. And it just made you realize, you know, that there was just this massive universe to what your movement was and the landscape that you were working in. Like in ballet, when you were, when I was younger, you had like a plie and you had a tendu and you pointed your foot and it, those were fixed things. Mm-hmm. Whereas then all of a sudden you were coming in contact with this really present moment by moment, massive world, epic inside world. So that was, that was great. Mm-hmm. And that's, still how I see it. After discovering this massive universe of movement and getting instruction in ways of mining that epic inside world underpinning it, Liz's progression post-London contemporary dance was conducted between places, studios and workshops. That's what, that's what you did. Like you just went different places and did workshops for a number of weeks and kind of would learn what you could from that person and then you'd hear about another one and then you'd try and save up and go to that one that was coming up and... Mm. That was always the way, like, I suppose there was an understanding that there was always so much more to learn and you just had to keep going. Mm-hmm. And, and even when you would sort of stop to work, then, you know, then when that would finish, because work was really sporadic at the time, you know, there wasn't, so you'd maybe, you'd work for a couple of months and then there'd be a break for a couple of months. So then you'd have that all planned, what you'd do. And I've heard there's this great thing in London, I'm going to save up for that. And then there's another great workshop in Paris. If I can do those two in that month, that would be brilliant. Mm -hmm. And The expanding horizon in Europe was mirrored by changes in the contemporary dance world here in Dublin, which was in the early stages of a significant transformation. In Dublin at the time, there was the Association of Professional Dancers in Ireland, which is now Dance Ireland. And they used to organise professional class every morning, which they still do. And then they would also, you could, you could also take part in these workshops, which might be like a two week workshop. So you would do class in the morning and then you could work with the choreographer every afternoon for two weeks. And that was sort of amazing because they brought over people from, you know, they brought over really great, sometimes really established, sometimes really up and coming choreographers and you would be in Dublin and there would be like three of you in the room with this great up and coming person or, you know, really interesting choreographer. So there was a few of those, like a good few of those experiences that were really informative and useful. And then kind of through that, uh, yeah, I suppose you just would get into chats about things and because they were very creative workshops, you know, where you know, the choreographer would be 
would be talking to you about ideas, but you would be generating the movement. Like as the dancer, you would be generating the movement. And so like people might see that and say, you know, they might notice that I was good at generating movement, which would be an indication that I could choreograph as mm-hmm. such. Um, so then, yeah, like a few opportunities came up out of that because people would have seen maybe what I had, what I had made in a workshop. And then say, well, you know, some companies began to talk to me about, you know, kind of commissioning work from me and mm-hmm. things like that. So, but that, that was sort of, um, it was just really gradual and really slow. Mm. And then there used to be, a th- there was a, a thing here called New Music, New Dance that used to be on in, in Project, the old Project. And people would make new work and there was kind of an emerging choreographer's platform there. So... Myself and Jenny and Ella got together and did a piece and Dennis, my brother, did the music and yeah, like you'd always be sort of half making something in the background, probably, yeah. That half making something turned into the full article on the Kish Kane Commission, Dragons and Tonics. But I was a bit, I was very lost on that piece and um, I just felt a little bit, yeah, with, with, with dragons that it sort of came together and I was working with my brother on the music and it was, uh, I was dancing in it and Simone Litchfield's beautiful dancer from Australia and David Bulger and James Hostey were dancing in that piece. And that was kind of a lovely time because I had started, I was also dancing for other choreographers at that time when I was dancing in Kushkame in David's work from the previous year. So it was sort of, uh, that was, yeah, that felt like maybe a beginning of something and that piece did well and it toured and it won a few things. And so that was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. It, it, got, it got a good response. The opportunity to make work at home at a critical evolutionary period for contemporary dance in Ireland involved dealing with some conflicting forces that other Irish artists with international careers in different art forms will most likely be familiar with. I think always when you're young, you think you're the first at everything. You you think it's kind of, I see it now. Like The thing that is interesting about going away with the training abroad is that it breaks your connection to home in a weird way. And then also then the relationship to coming home, it's as if that's somehow always a little bit of a failure. Like the successes that you get out of mm-hmm. here. Yeah. You know, actually I see that in, in people that I work with now who are in their early 30s. They don't feel that way about Ireland. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? In the same way, I just feel like we felt like, oh my God, the worst thing you can do is actually be here. <laughs> um, which is really, dis- yeah, but... Uh, which is difficult. Yeah, yeah. You, th- you, you expend a lot of energy sort of like, you know, going through that. Yeah. You start feeling like you have to go through it. Yeah, yeah. Totally. But it was true though. You're definitely right there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so we'll say, so just again, on, in that yeah. period, you're learning a lot and, and, and you're enjoying the dancing and you're doing very different things in, in Vienna and France as well as here. Yeah, yeah. And there was that sense also, like I remember... I think Jenny was in Montreal at that. I remember we were still writing letters, but I remember writing her a letter going, 
this is actually really great. Like I'm, I'm in Ireland and I'm working and it feels good to be here and it's kind of exciting. And there was a lot of support for Kush came at that time. There's a lot of energy. And so it was, that was really positive. And so, yeah, it felt good. And I sort of had a good mix of things because if I had enough of things here, I could go off and work someplace else. And that, that all felt, yeah, felt good. And also when I was abroad, like in Vienna or in France, like you're kind of, especially in Vienna because of the huge, because of the Impulse Tans Festival, like I would be there working and then you would see all of the work coming from all over the world, you know, yeah. over maybe six weeks. So yeah. I could go to rehearsal every day and then I could just go and see a performance every night. And that was pretty amazing. And that would have been like not, not consecutively, but it, like there was about four years of that. Yeah. So there was that sense of just seeing loads and yeah. also being in the thick of it, which mm. was really nice. Being in the thick of it, absorbing the best work across Europe and making shows in the eye of the hurricane at home made for heady times for Liz in this period. The same rules apply to dancers and choreographers when it comes to finding one's feet in your chosen field. A big impact was in 97. We did this piece for, uh, through Dance Theatre of Ireland, we did this piece from the Le Carne Bagway. We had done a previous piece, Desert de Moor, which was amazing. And then we did this piece, Jours Etrange, which was Strange Days. And it was, it was, Bagway had died of AIDS in 1992 and his company had gone around teaching his work. This was the idea. And so they had taught us one of, two of these pieces and this second piece was to the music of the doors. So that was also a moment towards the end of his career that he had been really exper like he had really experimented with his idea of form and, and even just making. Uh, so I danced in that piece. So that was a moment that I always remember because it was just so loose on stage. Which is like, no, like I do know what's happening, but I also don't know what's happening, and I'm not sure if it's enough. Like this whole sense of, you know, there was a part of the piece where myself and James were partners in it, and like we just had to try and communicate across the stage that I wanted him to catch me if I jumped, and we had to do it with our hands, and I was like. I'm just not sure that this is enough for a show, you know, yeah. even if it's not my show. Yeah. But it was just that kind of stripping back. Like the piece was great. The piece is great, you know, but that was really eye opening for me because I was used to, again, this sense of having to prove and validate. And, yeah. you know, I think the same question, is it enough, can apply to members of the audience as much as to the dancers. And it wouldn't really be that brave a new frontier if those questions weren't being asked. I think it's fitting too that it was the Dance Theatre of Ireland production Strange Days that was the turning point. Having kicked down the doors of perception, Liz was ready for new challenges on her own terms and forming Rex Levitates with her sister Jenny was the next step. Yeah, like I was a bit frustrated sometimes with the, with the commissioning thing because you sort of 
you sort of had to go in and make the peace and that was it. And you couldn't, you know, you couldn't really have control. And I was probably a total control freak. So um, I, and, and a friend of mine rang me and actually, and he just said, you know, you'd be fine on your own. And I was a bit like, oh, no, 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 no. I just don't think. And he was like, no, you would be better. So, <laughs> and I, I just believed him. He was, and, I, and I, I think in a way it was good. He was like, you know, if you need to make a break from a few things, then make the break and just start putting work out there in the way that you want. And even though, like, I know when I talk about it, I sound like I'm really clear and focused, like that like I was really clear and focused, but I wasn't. Like, I was just, mm-hmm. I was a bit all over the place and also not that confident, you know, so it was like if somebody said to me, you sh- you are, like, you, you are able to do this, do it, I would listen to that yes. because I didn't feel like that. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah. if you tell me I'm going to be okay, then I'll do it. Yeah. But the company was only, the company a lot was a mechanism to begin to look for funding in order to, in order to make pieces, you know. So it was really, like, if you were doing it today, you would just get a project. You mm-hmm. would just try and do a project, whereas then you made a company and you still did projects. So mm-hmm. for the first couple of years, I still only made like one piece, small piece a year, something like that, like for at least five years. Okay. Once the company was formed and the mechanism was in place to make pieces, the real hard work started. That being the task of making meaningful and lasting connections with Irish audiences, not necessarily schooled in the ways of contemporary dance. The fact that the meaning of more abstract work tends to get missed in translation was not lost on Liz. I think that there was good things back there. Like, I think I was always struggling between being in Ireland where I felt that audiences audiences wanted to understand really clearly what they were seeing. And I always felt that I couldn't give people that, Mm -hmm. that there was sort of an abstractness to what was happening in the pieces. And yeah, like uh, for me, maybe I'm so, I'm so much in that, you know, in my everyday that for me, that's meaningful and it says a lot and I can see it really clearly as a language, but I could understand people coming in off the street wouldn't. So, and then also, you know, maybe going through periods where I wouldn't worry about connecting. And then I go through periods where I really would want to connect. It's mm-hmm. like, well, what's the point of being here if we're not connecting? But also like lack of experience. Like I, mm-hmm. I realize now more and more that if you, you know, like what people are seeing, it's not just the dance and it's not just the music. Like they're just seeing everything. And mm-hmm. so how all those other factors in set and costume and light and all those things um, are doing a lot of the meaning making. And it's only really in the last number of years that I really understand that in a way that I can use that to support the abstractness of the dance. That realisation about what people are actually seeing and how those other factors in set and costume and lighting contribute to the meaning-making and the overall effect the work has on the audience 
is another one of those critical light bulb moments in the upwards trajectory of Liz Roach's art and career. For the best part of the last decade, the company's shows have been augmented by an attention to detail when it comes to production values. This visually arresting, distinctive aesthetic first found its true expression in the ambitious staging of Bastard Amber on the Abbey stage in 2015. But that was also a kind of a really big jump in scale and resources. Like the Abbey and the Dance Festival. And of course the Arts Council, you know what I mean? Like coming together to make that happen in a way that the previous pieces weren't able to happen. Mm-hmm. So that that was sort of a moment where I think even though there was loads to worry about in that production, but it was like lots of the other lots of the littler things were taken care of, Do you know, like yeah. even just going into the abbey, so much is taken care of. You know, so you wouldn't have you wouldn't be caught in the managing of the little things. So yeah. there was a moment in that piece where you know, there was enough time in the studio. Yeah. There was great people working with me. It was like, it was a really good team and there was enough time to think about things. Mm-hmm. Now, there could have been more time, but um, that also, yeah, felt like a bit of a moment. Like, I still did feel after that show, like, just everybody wait, because maybe the next one will be better. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so much about that show in particular, like there was a number of years that went into the making of that. Mm-hmm. And so with the dance festival and with the Abbey, you know, there was this sense of, they hadn't commissioned an Irish choreographer before, like the, the Abbey hadn't had the work of an Irish choreographer on the stage before. So that was all going in the background, that this was going to be a moment that I, everybody kept saying you better not get it wrong so that's yeah. not a great energy to start making a work no with. pressure no exactly <laughs> um and they didn't say it as nice as that either but so yeah there was a lot riding on it um and at the time I did feel and I probably shouldn't have worried about it so much but I did feel that sense of you know what would be the import like what's the connection I was thinking of the connection between Yates and Nanette Valwa and dance in the Abbey. And I was just thinking about those things. And, and I was also thinking, uh, yeah, like I, I would have made a few works sort of inspired by some of Yates's poetry. Like that's true, actually thinking back to, you know, the influences around painting that we were talking about earlier, like also poetry would be a big thing for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. And my aunt was a, used to, was a teacher. And so there would always be that open door to that side of things. She taught classics in English. So, you know, you sort of, you could always have that conversation. You know, she would be always lost in that. So, um, and I suppose, yeah, what, with Bastard Amber, there was just a sense of having to get all of the elements right at the right time. And with Yates, I kind of, I don't know why I ended up going so literally about it. To be honest, like I chose, I I, I worked on the Sailing to Byzantium because for some reason I remember in school when I read that, like I learned that poem off by heart without even trying. I always liked it. 
And I remember in sixth class reading it, being given a book and being told to read it and, and yeah, tattered coat upon a stick and all that. I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that for some reason it was always in my head. So I wanted to explore why it was in my head. And then also at the same time, which wasn't really a part of it, but it became a part of it, um, was my aunt was dying. And... Um, this aunt? Yeah, oh, yeah, I know. I know, it was really, really sad timing. Oh my God. So then the piece for me really became about death. And of course, because Yeats is there talking about what's going to happen, you know, you know, imagining he can't he can't fathom what's going to happen in old age. So then he he imagines beyond that, like where would I, where will we end up, and golden boughs and all this kind of thing. And um, so yeah, no, it just became about it became about that for me. And it was funny actually because like most of the dance community that saw the piece, like a friend of mine, a really close friend of mine who's a choreographer also, he said just when the piece started, he just started crying because <laughs> he was like, he was so tense for me and so tense for us all because it was a big deal. Yeah, you were representing yeah. there really, I suppose. Yeah, you know, as yeah. In you were taking the step across. The yeah, way. it felt like a bit of a moment. And what about, so what about the Patrick Scott um, element then? Yeah, so I was... Um, the thing that really got me about sailing to Byzantium was the gold. Yeah. And I never thought, it's really silly, but I never thought of gold as something belonging here or something. I always thought of that gold was really exotic. I, some, some school memory of, you know, some torque being made and like, and I remember thinking, oh, that's all the gold we have or something that we could only make one necklace. Just <laughs> this kind of kind of impoverished Ireland or yeah. something. Yeah. So then when I saw Yeats writing about gold and this expansive, I thought, what, how, how can he even imagine that much gold? Like I didn't even imagine it. And then when I saw Patrick Scott's work, I was like, he's working in gold. And I, I remember thinking, oh my God, the confidence to work in gold. Yeah. That's actually what I thought. So it was like, and I was just drawn again to, you know, the absolute symmetries and the perfection and then the simplicity. Mm. And for me, those pieces, yeah, like those kind of perfect circles of gold or whatever, I, I just wanted the piece that, that I would make, I wanted it to feel like that. And like I said at the start, feeling is believing. I was one of the lucky people to have felt the simplicity and perfection of Bastard Amber in the Abbey Theatre. And what I said at the start about the post-Street of Crocodiles effect on Dame Street in 1994 applies here to the rearranged world that greeted me upon exiting the auditorium onto Abbey Street that night in 2015. The intention behind this series is to cast a light not just on the art of making, but also on the act itself. And in the next clip, we get a real insight into how that worked in practice on Bastard Amber.
you know um, that film Meetings with Remarkable Men, the one about Gurdjieff. I was watching that at the time. I think Terence Stamp is in it. And there's all these kind of Sufi dances. Um, and I was watching them and I was really influenced by them. I was just influenced in all the, so because I think I was looking at Yeats and I was also looking at all the the vision ideas, you know, and how that kind of connected into these Eastern um, philosophies. And maybe I was just looking for some connection between being from here, but not feeling it mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah. I don't know. Or the other, or the other place. Or, yeah. 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 Yeah, and I was sort of clear about um, in, I was also, there was a lot of things actually in that piece, uh, I was also looking at Yeats's plays for dancers mm. because I was sort of amazed that he had written plays for dancers. I was amazed that anybody cared about dancers, mm -hmm. especially in 1919 or something. I only was only in reading about your piece aware that he made those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never knew that. No, and it was kind of, and he brought, he brought a dancer in from, Japan to do at the Hawkswell and he also I was really caught up with the dreaming of the bones and this idea of the you know the the, the cyclical idea that Yeats has I kind of influenced a, a later piece as well but you know this idea like of the dead dreaming back and this mm -hmm. sense of cycles and that we're just and I was like this is all very choreographic and you know it all makes sense to kind of the movement process and also yeah in the place for dancers there was a lot of stage directions so I used all of the stage directions as a kind of a bit of a container. Okay. Like it's like it starts with you know the stage is any any bare space in a room close to a wall and and it was really quite clear. So we sort of used that throughout somehow to give reference. And as a container, like that. Yeah. It, yeah. Just to hold it. Yeah. Together. Yeah. Okay. Another key reference on Bastard Amber came from The History of Irish Art by Bruce Arnold. He wrote this beautiful thing about um, early Irish art. And in that, he talks about how, you know, he was talking about the spirals on the stones in Newgrange. And he was saying about, you know, that none of that art is representative, you know, because it's, you know, they didn't... They didn't sculpt a picture of a sheep down the road, you know, they sculpt these kind of patterns, this kind of sense of spiral, this, yeah, I suppose pattern and spiral and all those things that we connect in, which we eventually associate with spiritual. Mm -hmm. So that was also really strong in my head that it would just be a piece of patterns and moving and it wouldn't represent, it wouldn't try and represent too much. Like there are places where it becomes clearer but I wanted to try and represent symmetries and perfection and then the destroying of that or mm -hmm. things like that I was into. So when you start off right and you're, you're in the 
the space. Uh, have you got the musicians there at the start of that whole process, or, or, or what? What's the actual kind of timeline of how the thing comes together over the course of those seven weeks? Um. So usually, you no, know, I might start just with the dancers. And then in a way, like the, what the dancers are doing starts to create its own rhythm. And then I get quite attached to that. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, so the music does tend to come after. And then we adapt and we change as a result. So, but I think kind of establishing the rhythm of things um, is... Yeah, establishing the rhythm with between the dancers for me is really important. And the interaction and the energy. And then in a way, I, I might then talk to the composer about that and say, this is what's coming up in the room. And they'll always have ideas from what we first talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a big pot. We put everything into a mm. pot. And then what starts to emerge, we kind of associate the meaning with it. Once again, I'm lucky enough to be speaking from the perspective of having experienced it, but Bastard Amber was a treat for the senses and one of those shows where sound and vision are so effortlessly intertwined, they become one. As strong as the painting and the poetry elements, the musical thread in Liz's work has been a place where lots of power resides. In a little while, we'll be discussing her work with Crash Ensemble on Deimos, but here was an opportunity to hear just how much care has to be taken generally when corralling the immense emotional power of music. But the thing about it is that, you know, music is so strong mm. and it means so much. Mm. And it's so emotional in so many direct ways. Yeah, and it's also kind of like, and lots of the time in dance for me when the, when like I just think that the music and dance exist together. I don't really feel anymore that it works that the dancers are dancing to the music or so I would always ask them to just stay in another space even if the music is there. Mm-hmm. Just think it creates a, a better tension between the two. Um and also because the dance has to fight to to be heard amongst the music. So you have to find a way of establishing that as strong as you can. Our, our experience can just be completely overtaken by the music so easily. Yeah. So it's like if you, it, I, I just think early on in a piece, if you've, you've to set it, that it's going to be led by the dancers and then it stays fresh between the two. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, it's, if you just see the dancers interpreting the music, yeah. Unless the piece is about that. Now, if mm. the piece is about that, that can be fantastic. Yeah. But if it's not about that, then... Mm. God, that's so interesting, because I, I think the idea of, you know, music is my world, usually, but I, 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 I really respect the idea that, like, it's a tool and it's a thing, and it, and it kind of... It, it's very strong. Totally. And, and it's just so much of what we see... Even if I'm really tuned into the dance, the music can just absolutely take over and can absolutely colour it. And so it is. But I think actually, once you know that, I, I also think a lot of the time in dance, like that's really great, you know, when you're 
when you're working with composers that are experienced in that as well, you know, there is that sense of it often needs, dance often needs very little. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, well, I know we're going to talk about the other piece because, you know, there's some, you know, in, in David Coonan's score, there's some really full on pieces, but actually I realized my approach to them is really different to mm-hmm. how I would normally. And I would find myself saying to the dancers, right, could we have to meet this? <laughs> You know, so we've got to have to find a way to meet it. I love this idea of the dance having to fight to find a way to meet the music. Presently, we'll be discussing Deimos, where the collision of elements at that very meeting point is at its most profound. But for the moment, it's back to some more insights into the act of making. Without sounding, you know blasé about it or whatever like I'm not sure I've got a lot to do with how it ends up a lot of the time like it's a thing and it's happening and I'm facilitating it happening and it's not that it gets out of control but it's like I might want it to be about something but it's like there's a piece emerging and it's going to be whatever it's going to be about Mm -hmm. like not no I'm that's making a bit more of that than it actually is but Sometimes I, I really feel that fight between, you know, it would be my disappointment for what I wanted it to be when we first started talking about it and what it has become. But like as I as I'm get older, I'm better at that now. Like I'm I'm never frightened of going into the blank space of having nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm not frightened of putting a company together that can under, that can work, that can make that happen. And, and I'm not frightened of it not being ready, you know, because mm-hmm. those are things that always get done and I don't have to, you know, it happens naturally enough for me. And you've done it enough times to, to yeah. know that it's going to... Yeah. I, I just have a thing. It's like, it's like I'm, I'm good at cleaning. Like, not my house anymore, but I used to be. But... <laughs> Like, but I am, I do that. I kind of do that. So I know how to finish that well, but, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I also know like, you know, in the most recent pieces, it's, I always stand back and always go, oh, so that's what's coming through it. Like, that's what it is at the moment. Yeah. It's always a little bit of a discovery for me. Mm. Like you're just doing a kind of, yeah. A head count and it could change at any time on, yeah, yeah who's there, what's happening, how it's, it is. It's just totally painting a picture. Like, I just chip away at something. Yeah. Like, I make something every day. Like, yeah. with the dancers, you know, we don't talk that much. Like, I just, you know, we improvise and I immediately put stuff together. I immediately add in movement that I do and I make something. And then the next day I come in and look at that and then I change it. And yeah. we just do that every day. Yeah. So it's it really is like painting. It's just adding and adding yeah. and adding and chipping until we find it. And then I usually, you know, we'll come in at a certain point and strip it way back and go again. And mm. so there's always something in front of me. So I think it's fair to say we've reached the very heart of the matter here. It's really interesting to know the source of these lines of movement, where they come from and how they emerge. I think patterns happen first in my head. So 
So at the moment, like, yeah, like patterns happen first and then sometimes I might see something. Like I might see an interaction or something. Mm, a, a gesture or an inter- anywhere. Yeah, it could be even, you know, I might see somebody standing in a position somewhere and like spatially, I just really like that. So that might start something. Okay. Or like I might see somebody, you know, standing in a space and somebody might come in. And you know the way people do things that you don't expect, like some unexpected human reaction. So I'd write that down mm-hmm. and then I would try that with the dancers. And then usually there's huge things to unravel in mm-hmm. those things. Because I can always, I don't know why I've been attracted to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I've brought it into the room. And then you just discover why you've done that. And then sometimes I would bring words into a thing. And it would take me ages to get to those words. But then when I found them, they're the ones. And mm-hmm. You know, and I work with really, like, the dancers are great because I can just say, I want, you know, like on this last piece, I can just say, okay, well, uh, here's a word, you know, here's two words, like, traveling back. And they'll just work somewhere in around that. And and I would explain it's, you know, traveling back in terms of memory or traveling back in terms of movement, or it can be... You know, I'd give them a bit of a world around it, but they really build a world. In terms of the building of worlds, we've reached the part of the story where we turn our focus fully to Liz's most recent work, Deimos, which, as I write, is still showing as part of Dublin Dance Festival Online, and which is projected to become an actual show, physically manifest in a theatre with seats that you yourself can sit on sometime in the near future. For now it exists as a standalone film in collaboration with Jose Miguel Jimenez that is beautifully designed by Katie Davenport, lit by Sinead McKenna, and sumptuously filmed by Steve O'Connor and Peter Martin with dramaturgy by Shane O'Reilly. The concept of separation and togetherness and the genesis of the creative thought process around the same actually stretches back to 2018 when the company commissioned David Coonan to write the score to be performed by Crash Ensemble. Inevitably, the pandemic brought the harsh weight of reality to bear on this prescient idea. into a world where the pain of having to separate or the inability to be together has suddenly become commonplace, this important work was cast. In the past year, the dance of life itself has taken such a strange and twisted turn that to see this work emerge from the ashes was sweet relief indeed. The weirdness of how our human interactions have been re-choreographed in socially distant ways is processed and recalibrated in the most poetic way possible in Deimos. This was conceived as an artistic solution to the public health restrictions and the end product comes across as an antidote of sorts. Everything about the way we move through the world has been hampered and blocked. Watching life in flow, albeit without touching, takes on added meaning now and Deimos taps into that feeling so successfully. We have been talking about the challenges of making dance work for audiences, but here the task is even greater. 
devising something for an audience that's absent. Yeah, like when I'm looking at it now, like there's always that thing that the piece becomes becomes much more like a record of a moment maybe than than you intended to. Mm. But yeah, I realize even uh, the whole process, like the intention with the piece was to make a piece about togetherness. Mm. And then all of this happened with the pandemic. So what, what do you do? And maybe a lot of the things that have happened, like a lot of the things that are now in the, in this film version of parts of the work, I suppose, yeah, it's, it was just like, how do you, how do you manage ideas of togetherness with all of these restrictions? And, and actually if you, we just applied the restrictions to the ideas and that sort of informed so much of it. Mm. Like in a way, when we first, myself and David Coonan first spoke about this work, you know, we really just wanted to make a piece with a lot of musicians and a lot of dancers. And it was all about what happens when they're all together. I would have always liked to be in an orchestra. I'd like that feeling to be in the centre of an orchestra. It was like that listening feeling. Even when I'm dancing, I'm not particularly interested in being out the front. I quite like being in the centre of the group and, you know, having people rely on me and me relying on people. I just like that feeling. So we were kind of just, like, that's what I was interested in with the piece. And then, of course... uh, and also that the piece would be really informal and easy, like kind of a bit like a concert and a bit not, and, a, you know, just easy. It was frustrating to have to basically remove all contact. Like I had sort of decided that like when the, when the pandemic hit, we had a choice if we were going to work or not in the company and you know, I, I would find it very difficult to do nothing for, like, to not make work for a year. I think it probably would be quite good for me, but I I like to do things. So um, I just made the choice that if that meant we couldn't have contact, then we couldn't have contact. So within the piece, yeah, those, those decisions I kind of just decided with two of the dancers, they're together in life. So okay. they were able to touch. And in a way... We were just like, well, this is this is what's going to happen. And in the in the work in progress, there was a lot of group sections with huge amounts of contact and huge amounts of touch. And yeah, I just remade them, went a different direction with it. What I'm really pleased about with this piece is that it was such a huge undertaking and we sort of did it and Mm -hmm. we saw it through and there were times when we were filming where people were being kind of pushed to their limit in terms of what they could I suppose what they could take on board there were so many considerations that had to happen and then everything else on top of that Mm -hmm. 
And even at that point, I was really pleased because we still pushed through mm -hmm. and and everybody did what was right for the piece and yeah. just gave it that little bit extra to try and, yeah, to try and get it to happen. Because I think that's, for me, like, it's amazing to be able to work in amongst the pandemic, but it's just the, the it's just the extra considerations, the realities of that yeah. are sort of massive. Calling those same realities massive might actually be an understatement. I don't want to reach for the triumph in the face of adversity metaphor just yet, but there is something to be said for just how comprehensive an achievement getting an ambitious show like this across the line is at the moment. Like many other artists, the effect of the pandemic has been transformative on Liz's practice. The resourcefulness it takes to reconfigure work for film is not to be underestimated. The command with which the medium is utilised in Deimos is another striking feature of the production. The thing was like for the last couple of pieces, you know, throughout the throughout this pandemic, um, what's been nice is that because things have had to be filmed, they then sort of inform the work. Mm. And in previous pieces, I've like I've been able to use films, you know, films to replace dancers that couldn't be here because, you know, people couldn't travel and things like that. So, uh, you know, we were always really clear as a team, like as a creative team, that this was a, this was going to inform us for later in the show, for, for the live show. And these were all just steps on the way to making mm. this live show. And because I've always believed that um, with dance, so much of what you make doesn't get seen. And sometimes it's a real pity what doesn't make it to the stage. Like, I feel like it's really only the sort of the strongest or the kind of the toughest idea actually gets in front of an audience. But there's loads of beautiful ideas that just don't make it, like, because, you know, because they're, I don't know, something doesn't work or, you know, an energy falls apart or something or, you know, or even things that you might write or things that you might draw. They can't be part of the piece, but... But all those other aspects are, I always feel, are just as important. So there's there's this nice feeling for the last couple of years, or for the last year especially, of um, being able to see the other side of, like, it's not just the show. I like that there's also mm. a film. I like that there'll be other ways of seeing it. Um, mm. So that's been, that's been good like we've had to do it but I think it's something that would be great if we could keep it that way I think this idea of using film to show what sometimes gets left behind when producing dance work for the stage is really interesting several times in watching Deimos I was struck by the quality of the direction and just how expertly the camera guided the eye to the key part of the action or scene just as I'm not an expert in dance I'm definitely not authorised to critique films about it either, but I think this one makes a strong case for how these two forms can merge into something uniquely powerful and affecting. The emptiness of that space between dancers and bodies becomes something tangible on screen. In one of the films, Catching and Falling, the dancers' outstretched arms reach out to catch a falling body, only to draw their hands away at the last minute, lest they touch. The poignancy of the moment where two dancers do touch 
is beautifully rendered with no little cinematic grace. Because also what's what's good in filming is that you're sort of, of course you film run-throughs of the section, but then you kind of chip away bit by bit. So I felt like by the end of every day, like we filmed the six pieces in probably four full days, but a little, kind of nearly five days. So by the end of every day, I feel like people were really kind of into it. So, you know, you'd be kind of, when you'd be moving into those end shots, it was sort of, things were really flowing in the room. People were sitting and watching all day. So then there was a nice sense of like, oh, look, because you could see the mon- we had monitors oh, out. Yeah. So, yeah, like there was always three or four people watching going, oh, look, have you seen that? That's beautiful over yeah. there. Try, you know, make sure you catch that again. And mm. so that was all, you know, and we tried certain things. Like I always think it's really beautiful the way at the end of the duet with Emily and Luke, the hand in hand duet, that the camera kind of goes in. But actually the plan for that was that the camera would pan out. So we have this totally beautiful shot of the of the camera starting with them and then panning all the way out. And that was the plan. And then like, I think in the last 10 minutes, Shane came over and said, well, now that you've done it coming out, just do it going in mm. once, just to have it. And like, and that's the shot. So yeah. it was that sense of people were sort of really steeped in it and kind of contributing and... Alive. Yeah. The unforced manner in which all the many strands unfold and intertwine in Deimos is indicative of just how alive everyone was to the possibility of making something meaningful, not just for the times we are living in, but for all time, across it, forever. From talking to Liz about how the production absorbed and worked with the restrictions, it started to become apparent that dance is uniquely well-placed to react to events that are almost too seismic for words to express. It's also a very open art form where everything that's happening outside can be part of the process inside the studio. More and more in the last couple of years, I've had a, a mentorship with the, a, an English choreographer called Siobhan Davies and she's now retired. Well, but when she talks about her life or recent life, like I've just, like it's really over the last three or four years that sometimes we talk and, you know, I, I tell her my problems and she tells me to think about it in different ways. But I'm always really struck by how everything for her becomes creative, you know, like even moving into no longer making work. She sort of turned that into a creative process. Wow, love it. Yeah, and it's really like just that sense that everything is is the process, everything is the practice and everything is the work that you're making. So I feel this year there's something about that that has settled, like everything that's happening is contributing to the work. The outsized everythingness of everything we've been experiencing this past year is a whole lot to process, let alone incorporate into your practice. 
but Deimos goes there and traces something new in the sand about the strangeness of it all. If your interest is piqued, then I would say you should slake that thirst when it does manifest itself in a theatre at some point sooner than you think, if not in the actual blink of an eye. The potential power of sound and vision combined is one equation that is limited by the screen, but the prospect of hearing the full force of the two in three-dimensional space is a tantalising one. I can't wait. The music was intrinsic to Bastard Amber, and they are similarly interwoven in Deimos. I think in this, you know, we sort of had to decide, we had to decide that, you know, they're both there together, the dance and the music are there together. And sometimes the dancers had to be really, you know, we had to be really clear about the connection to the music and then sometimes we didn't. But there were times, like in some of the, re- in, the in, in some of the bigger pieces, sometimes it's like, it's so big, you just have to match it. Like you just have to try and match it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, it's like, I do feel sometimes that works better live, you know, cause it's just, you have the full force of everything and you can really feel that. But I also feel like, uh, yeah, I just feel that there's a drive in the music that I, that I really enjoy. And sometimes like some of the busier pieces, like would have taken me a while to get used to, but like, I really Yeah, I'm really happy with the balance of the score. There's also going to be like, there's also going to be more for the bigger piece. So I'm sort of like, I also. Are you saying there's more to come, Liz? There is more to come. (laughs) (laughs) That more to come, when it does arrive, will be worth waiting for, rest assured. I did promise at the outset that I'd try and explain my own fascination with dance, but breaking it down isn't that easy. My favourite subject in college was linguistics, and the most interesting part of that for me was non-verbal communication. Fact is, all movement is revealing. What I bring to dance is a curiosity about how that can be shaped in such a way that it generates meaning and evokes feeling in powerfully affecting ways. In researching this episode of We Are The Makers and trying to understand more about what goes into the making of these dances, I enlisted the help of some friends who know a lot more than I do about this ancient craft. One of the new words I learned from my friend Rachel was proprioception, and I didn't know how lacking my life had been for a word on an awareness of the position and movement of the body. Bringing that word into the interview the next day elicited a response from Liz that pretty much sums up the art of choreography. For me, I would if I was going to introduce movement into a piece, like bring movement that I'd been working on, uh, normally if I would do that, I would sort of teach it to the dancers and then I would give them time to just make it make sense for themselves. Because, you know, all that's, so they would spend time with the movement and I'd be really, normally, I think I would be quite free about, you know, change whatever you need to change, but just make it have total 
sense for you in terms of weight in the body and shifting from one to the other and being able to stay in places and like so they can completely organize yeah just they can they can organize their whole intentionality and and then their whole structure around that and i suppose that's that's where i would see that the proprioception comes into play because when i see somebody who hasn't had that time for me the movement is i don't know a little bit thin or something or mm-hmm. feels a bit bare but when you sort of really see a dancer understanding how their body is in that movement and kind of given the time to do that i think it's just much richer possibilities around dance like maybe that more somatic approach to dance but like i think when people spend time focusing on what's happening within the body or within your body like it's really super trippy what's possible and then amongst other people it's amazing like it's so expansive it is it is just that sense of wonder at what happens you know these kind of when people spend time i suppose just looking inwards and then when they do that collectively yeah there's these sort of worlds i don't energies and connections open up like i feel you know and i feel really privileged to have had those experiences in life it's just like in terms of you know being in a studio and understanding understanding those rules and understanding how to be together with people and just the openness that happens in those spaces is really it's really beautiful like there's so much in that to be explored like in in a way in terms of performance performance might rob a little bit of that energy like there are choreographers who certainly put that on stage in a way that the performance doesn't rob it but um yeah i suppose I was reading this really beautiful quote the other day by this uh, woman called Peggy Feelin and she was just writing about performance and i can't even remember it because i can never remember anything but she she just re- sort of said like you know the whole act of performance like performance exists the whole act is its disappearance like its yeah. disappearance is why it exists that's how we know Brilliant. it was a performance <laughs> but i just have that sense of all of those experiences with with people in those rooms and in those studios and you know groups of dancers and musicians just in that kind of sense of I suppose uh, like perceptual shifts together you know really felt mm. um are just amazing yeah i think there's a whole thing to look at there
disappearing act is imminent here on episode two of We Are The Makers. Performance's only life is in the present and becomes itself through disappearance, according to Peggy Phelan. But we're bypassing that rule and making ours available to listen back at any point, podcasting through time and space for all eternity. From the podcaster's point of view, the same Peggy Phelan has something interesting to say about repetition too. The document of a performance is only a spur to memory, an encouragement of memory to become present. Becoming present. I'll certainly be happy for this episode in our series to become a spur for me remembering the wisdom gained talking to Liz. I hope it's the same for you. You've stayed with us this long, so I'll take that as a sign that it is. Our intention is to train a spotlight on the art of making in order to illuminate aspects of the process which often remain hidden or go unspoken. And there was an array of insightful thoughts from Liz there in closing. That sense of wonder at what happens in these spaces is something that is not alone intact in her case, but evidently thriving. And those perceptual shifts she talks about happening within the dance rehearsal studio walls is something she is directly responsible for generating in the minds of the audience, my own included. We are very grateful to Liz for the time she gave and the energy she brought to these interviews. Thanks too to Dance House for the use of their studios to host the conversations. As well as our own original score composed by Alton O'Brien, You've been listening to music from Bastard Amber, composed by Ray Harmon and played by him along with Zoe Conway, John McIntyre and Brian O'Connell. The score for Deimos was composed by David Coonan and performed by Crash Ensemble. These beautiful sounds you are hearing in this last chapter is the musical improvisation for the section Hand in Hand, conceived in collaboration between the composer and musicians Kate Ellis and Brian Bulger. The third instalment of We Are The Makers will be published in September. In the meantime, have a wonderful summer. Goodbye. We Are The Makers was written and presented by Donald Deneen, edited and produced by Ian Cudmore, with original music by Ulton O'Brien. This quarterly series was commissioned by Silas Newa in Washington, D.C. There we go. Makers, 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 makers.